For the week of January 16th, 2022, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 569, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Birmingham, Alabama, with a New Year's resolution, I'm Michael Giltz. What is your New Year's resolution, Michael? It's to stop saying fan service. I'm sick of this. It's like suddenly in the last two months, nobody can talk about any pop culture. It's a fan service movie. It's a fan service. It's like enough. enough. Oh, you're talking about Spider-Man. I know. Everything. Everything. Why why didn't they make the TV show? It's not really good on fan service. It's like, oh, for God's sake. (laughs) Stop. Stop I I thought for a second you were talking about like, you know, hey, you were cold and you needed a ceiling fan. I like fan service. Like somebody needs to come and fix your fan. (laughs) Exactly. They do need to fix my tribute to Sidney Poitier. I talked about his major importance as a figure and especially in his private life what a what a good person he was i did fail to mention the one major artistic triumph of his career and that of course is starring in the broadway drama a raisin in the sun which he then repeated on film not quite as good a film production as it was a stage production that was all the same people but it's a nice document of that stage production but that was truly uh, when you're looking at his work Uh, A lot of his films haven't dated well. They're important, significant, but not great as movies necessarily. But A Raisin in the Sun on Broadway, uh, that was a a pretty major, major triumph in his career. That's for sure. Now, did you ever see him in a, a, uh, that probably would have been his only Broadway. No, he he, he did not go back to Broadway. I did interview him in a round table, sleazy press junket thing for A Time to Kill. His return to movies after like eight years. He was doing that for Disney and they had paired it with Good Morning Vietnam. I was a college student, went to a sleazy press junket. They flew you out. You wouldn't do this as as an adult, as a freelancer, but when you're in college and you have the chance to interview people and we said, can we do that over the phone? They're like, no, you have to come. So they flew you out to San Francisco. We saw the movie Good Morning Vietnam (laughs) and then we got to interview Robin Williams and all the other people. People. So that was fun. And then they piggybacked on A Time to Kill with Sidney Poitier. We actually didn't get to see the film, <laughs> which was stupid, but I went to the press junket and I got to appreciate how difficult and annoying it is for people to sit in press junkets. You know, they were asked the dumbest questions, the stupidest questions imaginable. So he was patient and polite, but <laughs> I could see it wasn't easy. <laughs> yeah, Can I tell yeah. you something? So, so years ago, uh, remember the legend of Bagger Vance? You gots to find your swing. Yeah, it, it's a movie starring Will Smith and Robert Redford. No, uh, Matt about Damon. golf. Matt Damon. I thought Robert Redford was in it too. I don't believe so, but it certainly stars Matt Damon. It's Matt Damon who has to find his swing. Keep going. Okay, well, maybe I, I could have sworn Robert Redford had something to do with it. Uh, oh, he directed it. That's what it was. He directed it. And the only reason I remember any of this, here's why I remember any of this. You ready? So. Uh, when we, you do these press junkets, you get hours and hours and hours of tape recordings of these people. Right. And so I, I, you know, then you have to transcribe all of them to get oh, the good quotes. What a pain. What a pain. Yeah. And so I sent out my transcription to somebody who transcribed it and it came back to me and I'm looking for a specific quote here and there. I'm like, maybe I remembered it wrong. I can't. Like, yes, I remember Robert Redford saying X, Y, and Z, but, you know, didn't Will Smith say A, B, and C? It turns out this transcriptionist had tapes from this junket 
from another room, from, from <laughs> like a later room. And she had sent me the wrong transcriptions. Oh, how funny. It's mostly the same stuff though, I'm sure. But it was literally almost when she sent me the right transcriptions, I was like, oh my God, it's almost word for word. <laughs> yeah. And I thought about, I actually went and pitched a couple of uh uh, like Premier Magazine at the time was still there. I said, can I do a story on this? They said, you can if you never want to work in this town again. <laughs> they would, they'd be fine if you, they don't care if you work in the town again. I was at Premier Magazine. I would have said, go right ahead. That wouldn't, that wouldn't get you in trouble. It's, they they no, say the, the same ed- answers to quotes seven times. Yes, of course they do. They're asked the same questions and give the same answers. That's not a secret or something shameful. <laughs> you know, that's your fault as a journalist for not asking a question so different that they were forced to talk about something different. You know, it's not a scandal. But anyway, the scandal is that we got something wrong last week. No, correction. We didn't get it wrong. We need to update our information. We talked in Inside Baseball about the dominance of music streaming and how catalog music was more important than ever. That story is accurate. But after we went to press, the company that provided the data that uh, we were looking at, MRC Data, said, oopsie. And they updated their figures, which made Music Business Worldwide, which had done a great analysis of those figures, to say, whoopsie, we got to update our figures. So the story is the same. People listen to a lot of music online. Catalog is growing in importance, not just in real terms, but exponentially growing. It's really growing more and more important with each passing month. It's grown and grown. And now when you look at 2021, it's quite significant. And when Music Business Worldwide looks at the second half of 2021, you can see the dominance of catalog is growing more and more. It hasn't slowed down or peaked yet. So it has gone from about the early 60% of all music streaming is, is catalog, meaning stuff that's over a year and a half old. It's now up to 75%. So we had a number that was in the 80 plus percent. So the story is the same. Music catalog stuff is growing in importance. People are turning to older stuff more and more, and that's continuing to expand and grow. But when you think about it, just think three quarters of all streaming right now seems to be catalog, you know, 75% roughly is how much music is being streamed from catalog stuff, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Miles Davis, rather than the latest Adele album. So that's the story. It hasn't changed. But I mean, doesn't that make sense? Doesn't that make sense? There's much more. It's growing and growing by the month. Why would that be growing by the month? Why in the last six months would people suddenly be listening to more catalog? There's always been more catalog music than new music. So why is it why is it growing so much in the last year, year and a half? Why is it trending? You would think if people turned to streaming and had access to thousands of albums, they would always roughly listen to, you know, 70, 30, 80, 20. It just depends on the person. Maybe you're young and you're really into new music. Maybe older people are turning to streaming more and more and they are tending to listen to catalog more. There's lots of explanations for why, but it's not a static figure. It's growing. And it's like three quarters of all streaming. And that's a big leap from one year earlier it's like six two-thirds now it's up to three quarters so it's growing a lot and there's got to be some new explanation for that but this is the show where you get explanations we talk about this stuff we update it when we need to or correct ourselves when we're wrong and we've got a lot of stuff to talk about this week tell us burley well this week on showbiz sandbox we've got the numbers Woo! okay well we've always got the numbers when it comes to worldwide box office and i've got your number uh, hey, yeah, literally, you call me all the time. Seriously, lose my number. <laughs> but well, this week, we've also not only got box office numbers, we've got some streaming numbers for TV shows and I guess streams. I don't know what you call it, like streaming series. Well, 
it's one of our last glimpses at the big hits of 2021. My question is, is Wheel of Time holding up at Amazon after its big debut? We will definitely share that data. Of course, the pandemic is having its way with live theater. It was a big article about that, actually, in the New York Times yesterday. And TV production as well is being affected and award shows. We'll update you on the latest, but at least it didn't stop the SAG Awards from announcing their nominees. And as often happens lately, history was made. On Inside Baseball, we'll be joined by Ryan Fonder, a staff writer at the LA Times. Music publishing catalogs by everyone from Bob Dylan to Tina Turner and even Bruce Springsteen sold his catalog for $600 million. All of those catalogs have been selling like hotcakes. We've been debating whether music publishers are overpaying for them. And lo and behold, Ryan spoke to the experts about this very issue. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. That's Wait, a scream. Why are you screaming? Oh, scream. <laughs> Wait, no, you got to do it three or four. How many are they up to now? You got to do it like six times or something like that. Okay, let me get Fay Ray out of retirement and then we'll do it. But hold on okay. for that later. Anyway, we're looking at Worldwide Box Office for the week ending January 16th. And the number one film around the world is Spider Man No Way Home. $90 million last week. It's at $1,625 million. Million dollars. Here's a fun stat it's the 11th film in history to gross more than 100 million dollars in the IMAX format. So that's pretty cool. So that's uh, it's less than 10 percent, it's like seven percent, something like that. Seven percent right. of its gross coming from IMAX, but that's a lot of money 100 million dollars. It's also number eight all time, and in domestically, it's at number five, and it just needs two million dollars to pass Black Panther and become the fourth. Oh, I'm sorry. It just passed Black Panther and is now the fourth highest grade. I mean, it's going to happen today. It's Monday. So it's happening any minute now. It will pass Black Panther and become the fourth highest grossing movie of all time in North America. Then it will need another $60 million to pass Avatar. Don't know if it's going to get there. And that'll be as far as it gets. It's not going to get close to Avengers Endgame, which is at $900 million. That's $200 million away. It ain't going to gross that in North America. But it's a big, big success story. But we have a new film on the charts. At number two is Scream, the latest reboot of the meta-horror franchise that made $50 million in its opening week. Sing 2, the animated flick, that is now available in homes, but it's still making money at the box office. $25 million this week. It's at $216 million worldwide. Right below that, I think roughly, maybe it opened on a Sunday last week, is this Russian film, The Last Warrior 3. We thought it was the last hero or the last action hero, and I made an Arnold Schwarzenegger joke, but the latest translation of its Russian name says The Last Warrior. So we'll go with that. Maybe it made $22 million this week. That seems like a lot, but the total is $28 million. The only number we had last week was $6 million. So either it's tearing it up in the weekdays or it only opened up on a Sunday. So we only got one day's grosses out of that. Or I don't know what's going on there. But if you do, tell us. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or... You can call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. And please do call us. I'd love to play some uh, some voicemails at the end of uh, each program from our listeners. Of course, you can reach out to us on Twitter at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. We're also on uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. And then there's a prequel here, probably the last one. It's The King's Man, $19 million this week, $93 million worldwide. Not an awful 
delivery for a movie in the pandemic, but you you want your Taron Edgerton when you're doing The Kingsman. That's that's my feeling. The Matrix Resurrections opened up in China very very softly, not a lot of money, um, but it did gross 15 million dollars worldwide. It's now at 140 million dollars and counting. China has also had a much bigger hit from Embrace Again, a drama about the Wuhan lockdown in the first three months of the pandemic. That made another $14 million. That's at about $130 million worldwide. Right below that is G-Storm, a Hong Kong thriller, the fifth in the alphabetical series. Hey, Sue Grafton should sue. $10 million it made this week. It's at $86 million and counting. And another Chinese film is Another Me. That's a few steps below, but that made $8 million and that's at $60 million and counting. Tied with that is the 355, which is that action film with a lot of a lot of female action stars, some cool women in it. It's not doing great. It made eight million dollars this week. It's at fourteen million dollars and counting. And we don't talk about Bruno, but we do talk about Encanto, which made another seven million dollars this week. It's at two hundred and twenty-three million dollars worldwide. Want to tell your story? <laughs> well, oh, what? Where I said to my my daughter, I said, uh, "Hey, we don't talk about Bruno." And then she proceeded to sing the entire song. I didn't know she knew that song, but <laughs> just goes to show you what a talent Lin Manuel Miranda is. That he continues to just churn out like hit songs. Right, it's it's a top five hit, and people say, "Oh, they chose the wrong song for the Oscars," but. It's not really an Oscar song. It's fun. It's catchy. But I think they went right with the song that they did, which is much more in the Oscar vein of what you would sort of expect. So I, I don't think that was necessarily the wrong choice. We don't have an updated yet for the week of January 22nd. The latest charts are not out yet. So Adele is music, still at number music one. Music charts, you mean. Right. Music and we don't charts. talk about yeah, Bruno yeah. is still at number five. So we're waiting to see if it goes up any higher. But that's fun to see. And why is it charting now? Because it hit. You know, Disney Plus at Christmas, Christmas Eve, and they've had two, three weeks to binge on the movie and start playing the soundtrack. The soundtrack is the number one. The song is top five. Good for them. Licorice Pizza, the Paul Thomas Anderson film, which I found pretty disappointing. It was okay, but I wanted to like it more because I've liked almost all of his movies. I think it made $6 million this week. I'm not sure. It seems a little high. Maybe it opened up in a number of international territories, but it is at $14 million worldwide. And then Bell. This is a Japanese animated film. I'd love to see it. The Japanese title is really The Dragon and the Freckled Princess. And in America, they said, eh, Freckled Princess, let's call it Bell. <laughs> so it's called Bell. It grossed $2 million in its opening weekend here in North America. It's from G Kids, which is a distributor that picks up really good stuff and does a really good job with animation and other smaller titles that are family friendly. That's at $58 million worldwide. I wanted to go see it, but the English dubbed versions were the ones playing all day long. And the animated version that's in the original Japanese with English subtitles, which is the version I prefer to see, the only option was 10.40 at night. <laughs> I'm like, that means the movie starts at 11.10 at night. It means I get out at 1.10 in the morning. No, thank you. That's just, I'm, a, I'm too old, I guess, but it just doesn't, wasn't worth it. And even, you know, it was going to be for free because I have it passed AMC. So, you know, there's the box office and we know Chinese New Year is coming up. That'll be January 31st through February 15th. It should be a time when the Chinese people flock to cinemas. But will that happen? I don't know. I mean, certainly they announced today when uh, the day we're recording uh, that and they being the Chinese government, uh, that they will not be selling tickets to, uh, to the public for the Olympics. Uh, oh, in, in I missed that. Yes. So um, there will be no there will be no people cheering. I think that there there are certain people that are, are allowed to come in. Right. And but they, basically, there won't be big crowds. 
Correct. It's not, it's not that they will shoot you if you or if there's anyone in the stands, but basically no. it's just going to be the athletes performing in fairly empty stadiums. Co- correct. Yes. Uh, oh. Which is uh, disappointing, obviously. Uh, and uh, so, but the question is with Chinese New Year coming around, there are millions of people that are locked down in China because they have a zero COVID policy. Uh, and so will movies be able to open? I mean, will, will they decide, Hey, you know what? Let's just hold off on releasing this film and let's wait until, you know, there's no COVID and we can release this film properly. Mm, Well, they've been releasing movies all along and making monies. It's quite a different proposition to have people in theaters with a mask on watching a movie versus tens of thousands of people gathering in a stadium to scream their heads off. So all those crowds together on public transportation, going to a stadium together, all those different places, that just creates a huge super spreader event, which is not the same when you have thousands of movie theaters distributed all over the country. Bringing everybody together in one location, not so smart. But that doesn't mean they necessarily have to shut down the box office, but they will if there's breakouts in certain territories and they think it's necessary. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. We know uh, TV wants to keep producing TV. It's not easy. New reboots and remakes of Justified, they're bringing back Timothy Oliphant, and The Santa Claus with Tim Allen back in a limited series for Disney+. Plus. We will reboot everything, but will they get to film them? Lots of stuff is shutting down uh, all over TV Different TV shows are pausing, and in fact, Monarch, the big Fox drama for the winter-spring season, it's a new TV show set in country music territory in Nashville, Tennessee. It stars Susan Sarandon, and they've just said, you know what? We're not going to risk it. We're not going to have three episodes and then have to pause because our production is pausing. So they're going to keep filming episodes, but they've held back the biggest show they were promoting in winter. It was going to debut like after the Super Bowl or after some big games. So they were going to do everything they could to push it. That's all all pushing back to the fall. Well, can, can we just go backwards just a bit to the box office for a second? Sure. I, I just wanted to mention that, uh, okay, a couple things. One, it's pretty remarkable that Spider-Man in its fifth week is still making $20 million. 90, 90. Oh, $20 million no. domestically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. people, and, that's why the SNL spoofed it and said, stop going to see Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I didn't see uh, SNL this week. Um, also, Sing 2, remember, this is a film that is now out on a premium video on demand. It made $8.2 million domestically this week, dropped only 28.7%, which is less than it dropped the week before that. Right. And, you know, part of that is maybe, oh, they they advertised it. You know, it's coming out, it's coming out, it's coming out. I'm going to be available to buy at a home. And people said, yeah, we want to get the kids out of the house. It doesn't mean they coexist well. We know if you make it available in the home, far fewer people will probably go see it in the movie theater. It's just common sense. You know, and Sing 2 is the type of movie that they might just plop the kids down in front of the couch. I know people who weren't comfortable going to the movies and they absolutely spent the $25 to watch Sing 2 over the weekend when it was available. But the main idea is it was a very popular movie. It would have made a lot more if there was no pandemic and uh, maybe not that much more, but they should have waited 30 or 45 days. There was no reason to rush it out after 17 days or whatever it was to get it into homes. I think that was a mistake. Support theaters, let them play out. 45 days is a very, very quick turnaround. And there's nothing happening right now that people, it's not like a holiday. So there was no like, oh, it's Christmas Eve, we want to get in Kanto in homes. Yeah, that maybe made some certain sense. But Sing 2 in the middle of January, there was no need to do it. It was just foolish, I think. Well, certainly, okay, a couple things. One, Encanto on Disney, on Disney Plus. And, of course, uh, you know, the Santa Claus on Disney Plus. 
Uh, did you read uh, Bob Chapek, the CEO of Disney? Uh, he sent out a memo that I'm sure he knew would immediately be leaked uh, to the press. And it, it was his, you know. Well, when you send it out to tens of thousands of employees, it's not a private memo. It's not no. leaked because he sent out to 10,000 people. So, of course, everybody sees it. Right. And so it was basically the three pillars of Disney and storytelling and all. And uh, but basically, if you read between the lines there, it's all about streaming for him right now. And what did he say? He said, the consumers have spoken. The future yes. is streaming. To which I say BS, because two years consumers spoke. And what did they say? They said, we love going to the movies. 40% of all box office was Disney. They had so many movies grossing a billion dollars, they didn't know where to put them all. They were dominating worldwide box office. They were making a ton of money from worldwide box office. And the consumer had spoken. But then COVID spoke. People couldn't go to the movie. That's all that changed. COVID spoke. And maybe consumers are speaking as the slowdown in subscriptions for Disney+. Plus. Why isn't that consumer speaking and saying, yeah, you know what? We're not all going to be streaming. And we're not all dying to sit in our couch in the living room. We, a lot of us still want to go to the movies or to theme parks and other stuff. So this idea that consumers have spoken and they prefer streaming to movies in the theater not true. They love a lot of great well, content. I'm not saying it's true. I'm saying no. I'm saying it. Bob Chapek is wrong. Oh yeah. There's oh, a lot okay. of there's a lot of people who love Disney Plus, but they also like to see all those Marvel and Star Wars and Pixar movies in the theater. And if 45 days later they came to Disney Plus, nobody would be angry. And there's no good business model for making a 200 million dollar animated film that you just slap onto your streamer. You know, it's 90 no, minutes, fact, it's 100 minutes. That's an asinine business model. So if he thinks the future is to keep making 10 movies, eight movies a year that cost $200 million and just putting them on his streamer, he's he's being reckless and idiotic because he's losing out on 600, 800, a billion dollars in box office, meaning lots of money back in their pockets. They can make those movies for free, basically, and then put them on the streamers and have money in their pockets. Well, keep in mind, uh, he, first of all, the other thing that changed was him. Meaning, you know, not only did COVID speak, but Bob Iger left and he took over. So that's that's something else that changed. Uh, the the other thing that changed is, uh, you know, they started going worldwide over the past two years, and a quarter of their subscribers over at Disney Plus come from Hotstar in India, where they're paying much less, and they need. Well, to that's get already to much much less. They're only charging eight dollars a month. Netflix is making twice as much money from each subscriber. Speaking of which, in you want North to talk America. about Netflix for a second? Because <laughs> We're going to jump that. Yeah, they, they raised their prices. I love this. I love this. They said they're raising in the U.S. about $1.50, roughly. So the most popular plan goes from $14 to $15.50. It's been like October of 2020 was the last time they raised prices. It's okay. But they didn't say we're raising. They said we're updating our prices. We're updating our prices so we can continue well, to offer right a wide word. variety of quality energy. We're updating it. Well, thank you. Yeah. Why don't you update it to 10? How about that? <laughs> that wouldn't that hurt. Downdating it. Yeah, downdate it, baby. Go for it. <laughs> but they, they well, are pandemic free. They don't have to worry about the pandemic except for production. But Broadway has to worry about the pandemic. They hit their lowest capacity and grosses in decades because it's the winter months when box office goes down and so many shows have had to pause or go dark and two more shows have shut down but they say only for a few months the dylan musical girl from the north country and to kill a mockingbird have both gone dark they think they're going to bring back girl from the north country maybe to a different theater to kill a mockingbird has gone dark until june well uh, a couple things uh, <laughs> you keep saying a, a couple things <laughs> uh, yeah well because i gotta you know tell you hey 
I got to warn people. I might be talking for a while here. Okay. Uh, first girl from the North country saw it. Doesn't need to come back. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's second, not a lot of demand waiting for that show. I agree. Yeah, exactly. Uh, to kill a mockingbird. Don't they have to change leads? Wasn't it like Ed Harris? Somebody was, I can't remember. There's a new lead coming back into the show. They're already, they're fine. That's not why they're not why they're going dark. And that show is a blockbuster hit. Girl from the North country would like to be on stage when the Tony awards were announced because they're hoping they would win the Tony for best musical, in which case that would hopefully give them a boost. And they'd like to be on Broadway when that happens, which is understandable. They've had an interrupted run and they could win best musical. Uh, so, you know, they'd like to be oh, there. Yeah, so uh, yeah, you know, who happen. won't win a Tony is director Joss Whedon, but he, he did do some good acting job here. He had to, uh, he spoke to New York magazine. It's for the first time since a number of allegations have sprung up from all sorts of people, from big stars to costume designers, to people on the sets. And, and I mean, just all over the place, this guy had to face up to so many accusations. He did a sit down with New York magazine and basically they had to run through them all. And basically his response is everyone else is lying or they're wrong or they're confused or I don't know what they're talking about. Gal Gadot, she misunderstood me because English isn't her first language to which she responded. I understood him perfectly. <laughs> Ray, <laughs> Ray Fisher. This was kind of funny. He said, Ray Fisher's a bad actor in both senses. <laughs> he says he told him he was cutting him from the movie because he sucks as an actor. And so he's, he's just getting revenge on me. Charisma Carpenter. Okay. Maybe he wasn't mannerly, but I didn't call her fat. Michelle Trachtenberg claims that there was a rule. She couldn't be alone with him. I have no idea what she's talking about. And on and on. I was like, wow. That's not a good interview when all you have to do is say, everybody else is wrong. Uh, he doesn't believe them. He doesn't agree with them. They misunderstood him. Though, sure, he did have an affair and other weird relationships like paying an actress to sit in his home and watch him while he wrote, but she couldn't tell anyone about it. Okay. Yeah, I, that's true. I pay somebody to sit and watch me while I do my podcast. But I, I've got like five people here I'm paying uh, to sit and watch. <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> no, he just, I think he deserves an award. <laughs> what kind of award definitely not a sag award why not they announced their nominations i guess he got dissed this year man i think his performance came out too late to be considered for sag award for best performance and a guy trying to deny allegations by a dozen credible people but anyway the sag <laughs> award nominations did come out we've got five nominees for best picture it's their equivalent of best picture belfast coda don't look up House of Gucci, and King Richard, all of which basically are big ensemble films, which is the sort of film the SAG Awards would like. And Don't Look Up got nominated because everybody in the film voted for it. Which is everybody in Hollywood, so there you go. Yeah, there you uh, go. The only interesting stuff there is the best TV stuff. In TV drama, they made some history. Squid Game is the first international film, the TV show not in English, to be nominated for a SAG award. And uh, that's cool. Also, Yellowstone. They gave some love to Yellowstone. If you're a white male over 50, you probably love Yellowstone. But it's been mostly ignored by the critics. And why isn't there more buzz for this show? There's been lots of stories about how it's a flyover show and the, and the stupid critics on the coast hate, you know, American shows. And it's like, no. No, no, no. There's lots of shows that are hugely popular, like NCIS or The Law and Orders and other things that chug along and CSIs that, you know, have big, big audiences, but people don't talk about them a lot. So this is not a new phenomenon, but it does start Kevin Costner. It is hugely popular. And it's nice to see that big ensemble cast getting recognized because it is one of the most popular shows on television.
Yeah, you need to turn your mic. I around. did. I, t- I turned my mic completely around. I was talking to the back of the audience. I don't know what you, was you, going you, on there. Yeah, you were so. Well, maybe you wanted to to address the person who's watching you right I'm now. I'm talking to Middle America. Yes. So <laughs> the the AFI awards have been pushed back to March, and the PGA awards, the Producers Guild, have delayed their ceremony. They don't know till when, but of course, it's all due to COVID, which is what I say is why. Why are they delaying the AFI awards and the PGA? These are not fundraisers. They they depend well, on. AFI is 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 that's actually if I'm not mistaken that is televised so they do have a well that televised what, event uh, well I, all right it, no the AFI awards are not televised maybe not maybe not maybe no I'm they wrong. do they know. do some specials about the hundred biggest comedies of all time they do those every oh, once okay. in a while but they don't have an annual TV show maybe it's streaming or something but basically I think they all want to get together and have a party and I understand that I do too but you know what. Just announce the winners and be done with it. You know, it's not going to happen now. Not a good idea. You don't need to wait till July just so you can sit in a room together. Just announce the awards and move on with your life. That's what question. Question. Uh-huh. Because if we were awards uh, journalists, which apparently is all in vogue, everybody's got to be an awards journalist now. Okay. Even the New York Times this Sunday, there w- the arts and well, they've had the section. carpet bagger and they've done stuff for years. Right. But this Sunday, they got a lot of flack for actually piling on because they actually had a separate in the in the printed paper, a separate section for the Oscars, which is really just a way to go out and Get grab ads. for your consideration ads. Yeah. Right. Well, then, um, yeah, they, they need to make money. They're not making money from people buying print. Do you own a print copy of The New York Times? No, you do not. Yes, I do. How oh, do you think I know? Yes, I get it on Sundays. Uh, I pay for the digital subscription. They have uh, close get to, it on I Sundays. Think- yes. Well, that's good. But a lot of people, I used to get it five, seven days a week. <laughs> you well, know, I would if it wasn't like five million dollars to get it for <laughs> seven days a week. I also get the LA Times every single day. In fact, in print, uh, good for you. In print. Uh, now, the the my point uh, of bringing up the Oscars was, of course. Uh, if we were awards journalists, we'd look at the SAG Award noms for Best Picture. We go, oh, well, who does it help out the most? D- does it help out Belfast the most because that's a theatrical release? Does CODA get a bump? Because there are films here that I didn't necessarily think I would see, like House of Gucci or- Why not? Uh, it's a big hit and and, and, it, and it's a popular film. Uh, the Oscar voters have been watching it. It's been getting good response at the Oscar at the Oscar, you know, viewing parties and things like that that they've been able to hold, and the bu- the buzz is good. It's not a well reviewed movie, but it's a popular movie. It's just right up Oscars, you know. Power big- of the Dog is missing. I thought I might see that. That doesn't have as big a cast. Again, the SAG Awards really prefer movies with big ensemble cast, and there's really like three, four people in Power of the Dog. More like House of King Richard. So that snuck in there. That's not a huge cast, but it is Will Smith. But The Power of the Dog, it could have been there, obviously. But it's Spider-Man. not a large it had three Spider-Man. It well, had like Sp- everyone. Comic book, movie, comic book movies rarely get nominations for award season. Now, let's, let's talk about that for a second. And I know you want to move on to streaming. Okay, so we will do that right after this. We'll be right back after these messages. No, we don't have any messages. But uh, apparently... Uh, Spider-Man is not up for any BAFTAs because Sony does failed not to, make fail to submit it or whatever. Yeah, no, no, they will not allow it to be streamed because, of course, piracy. Yeah. Uh, and so they didn't put it on the the streaming portal for either the Oscars or so or it wasn't the, uh, eligible. BAFTAs. Yeah, so it's not eligible. Go figure. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's just one of those things. But you yeah. know what? Power of the Dog is a streaming movie, although it was in theaters. Uh, what? Not really. Not really. It was basically streaming. Well, Coda was basically streaming too, even yeah. though 
It yeah. really deserved a huge opening. It was a great movie. What is act? What are people watching though when they watch streaming movies and television shows these days? Well, we don't get these numbers every week. I'm not quite sure why. I'm always looking for them, but we do have the Nielsen streaming numbers for this week. They cover Amazon Prime, Disney Plus. Hulu, Netflix, and Apple. This is only North America, or maybe the U.S. only, I should say. And it's only stuff being streamed through your television. They don't cover stuff you watch on laptops, like the way I'm watching a lot of this stuff, or on your phones, or mobile stuff like that, or iPads. They don't cover overseas, and they don't cover some people like HBO and others who, come on, join the gang. It's good to be in this mix. There are 10 shows overall. We combine the different charts from the top 10 streaming acquired shows, the top 10 original shows, and the top 10 movies. And we got our overall winner, and no surprise, the biggest show of the week, and we're looking at mid-December right here. It's December 12th through the 19th. The Witcher on Netflix. Boy, was that a big hit. People were talking about it. 2.2 uh, billion minutes reviewed. I believe that's its opening week. Big success story for Netflix. It really grew from season one. Terrible wig. Not a good show, but people love it. They keep watching it. That's the big hit. And then Coco Melon, this kitty show if that they acquired. I don't know if you've ever had your kids are too old. You haven't had to watch it, but it just keeps growing and growing week by week. It's 840 million minutes this week. It's the second biggest property in streaming on those on those services in mid-December. And then I, I haven't seen Coco Melon, but I really like watermelon. In fact, I like watermelon sugar, which Harry Styles watermelon sings. sugar. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, of yeah. course, he's going to be uh, Friday night at, at Coachella. He's the headliner. Oh, that's right. Yes, that sounds fun. I, I, I know you'll be there. No, I will not. <laughs> Criminal Minds is on Netflix. Hawkeye, one of two shows that are not a Netflix show in the top 10. Hawkeye is on Disney+. Plus. That grossed 580 million minutes. Lost in Roast? space on Netflix. Roast? I know I said the wrong word. The Sandra Bullock film, The Unforgivable. That's the most popular movie in streaming. The Unforgivable was watched 566 million minutes so assuming it's two hours that's like 170 million people watching it or something like that right yeah uh, yeah yeah well, no two but hours no it'd, be, it'd no it'd be like close to two i'm sorry it's almost 300 million people watching it or 100 280 million people watching it if it's two hours long so it's it's a it's a lot of different views of the unforgivable and then seinfeld Netflix acquired Seinfeld a little bit ago. 511 million minutes were streamed last week. I know someone who is binging the show right now. So uh, it happens. And then NCIS, like I said, all those shows that just chug along like Criminal Minds and NCIS and The Witcher, very popular. But no, they don't get a lot of attention from critics and they don't get a lot of award season love. It's not a scandal that Yellowstone isn't written and talked about all the time. It's like, oh, white guy defends ranch. <laughs> no, no. The big scandal is that it's made and produced by Paramount, but Paramount in a fire sale sold it off to Peacock. I wouldn't call that a scandal. I would just say, yeah, they probably wish they had it for their own service, but they also made good money from Peacock. So eventually they'll get it for Paramount Plus. And meanwhile, they enjoy the fact that, you know, Peacock is handing over a pile of cash to them, helping them defray the cost of the show. It's not always the smartest idea to pay it in-house and keep it in-house all the time. There's reasons people make shows and sell them to other networks or cable channels. There's good money to be made. Like in Back to the Outback, a Netflix movie. And then number 10, this is the list of the top 10 most popular franchises, is in fact Amazon series The Wheel of Time. It, made, it was seen 467 million minutes in mid-December. I believe that's the seventh of eight episodes was airing that week. 
So that's when they dropped that episode. So the series is almost done. From everyone I know who's watched the show, they felt after the first two episodes, it really got better. And the middle four or five shows were really good. And then it sort of petered out at the end. We know it debuted with about 1.1 billion minute views. So it was hugely sampled at the beginning. Maybe it fell off right away. Maybe it's been trending slowly down and hasn't stopped yet. Maybe it has been at four to 500 million minutes for several weeks now. I have no idea because we haven't seen these charts. So maybe the show has is still falling or maybe it has found its audience level. And will that be enough for Amazon to bring it back? I don't know, but I know you want to make original content. Six of the top 10 shows are acquired. Eight of the top 10 originals are from Netflix. And, uh, you know, seven films on the movie list were Christmas themed. So when you look at the movie list, you realize it's mid-December because you see Home Alone. <laughs> you know, you see all the stuff that you would expect to see on a, on a movie list of what movies are people watching during the holidays? Well, of course, they're watching Elf. They're watching Home Alone 2. They're watching The Santa Claus. It's very popular, which is why Netflix said, hey, let's make another one. Well, here's a question for you. You know, NB I'm surprised this wasn't in Big Deal, Big Whoop, but NBC Universal has said, yeah, uh, thanks, Nielsen, but we're going to go with uh, iSpot TV to uh, measure our, our audience data from now on. Well, everybody, everybody's trying to find a new measurement. I thought Universal was trying to come up with their own data measurement. Uh, uh, they've cut ties with Nielsen. That's significant. But everybody's trying to come up with their new metric, new data, a new way to measure people and capture it all. I don't think they can do it without the cooperation of the tech companies. I think they need the telephone companies and the, and the computer, iPhone, tablet people to work with them. Otherwise, how are they going to get all that data? How are they going to know who's watching what? It's tricky. And to bring it all together, it ain't easy. Nef Nielsen was not doing it on its own. They've dropped the ball multiple times. They seem to be slow in pivoting and trying to capture all these eyeballs in the new world. I never understood why when you had 70, 80% of homes hooked up for cable, why you couldn't just tell us why, why are you sampling a thousand homes? Why can't you just give us all the data anonymized from everybody in the country? They should know minute by minute what households are watching in cable. Certainly individual cable companies knew like Comcast. So why they couldn't have much more robust numbers for that? I don't know. One of the people here watching me uh, record today's episode that I pay is actually a Nielsen um, oh, you know, cool. uh, monitor. Yeah, they, they want to make sure that they catch every minute of every show that I watch. <laughs> That's right. Well, it is time for Big Deal, Big Whoop, our, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment until we'll, ha! and they tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. That's why Sperling usually does that. Michael, you blew it. What's our first story? Well, our first story is about the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Okay, big deal. I mean, you could literally stop there. Big deal or big deal. It's like all anybody can talk about. He is in a heap of trouble as the UK government continues to be rocked by revelations that it was partying as the rest of the country was in lockdown. Not, not a good look. Uh, even a state of mourning for the death of Prince Philip didn't stop the Tories from having drinks with dozens of people while the rest of the nation was restricted from even visiting loved ones dying in hospital. Maybe, maybe Corona is, doesn't like affect 10 Downing Street. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's not. I don't know. Uh, so here's the thing. What better time for the conservatives to announce they would be freezing the BBC license fee for two years and perhaps eliminating government funding forever. Big deal or big whoop? Well, I think it's a big deal because they're threatening the livelihood of the BBC. When they freeze funding for two years, they are cutting funding for the BBC, and they've been doing that for several years now. The general 
belief of people is that they just hate the BBC. They don't like their reporting. They don't like nonpartisan, accurate reporting. They think they're anti-government when they're just doing their job of reporting the news. Sorry about that, buddy. But they don't like the BBC and they want to gut it. And they're doing that. And they're also threatening to completely rethink funding it at all forever. So after years of cuts, they're cutting the funding again because they're not keeping pace with inflation. And they're saying, look, we're going to look at this and decide whether or not we want to fund it at all. The good news Boris Johnson may be soon out of office and maybe the Tories with him. So, you know, they're not going to be able to do that two years from now if they're not in power. Well, here's the thing. Sometimes a big story is staring everyone in the face. Okay, that's the reaction to a story in Bloomberg News that points out the obvious. Podcasting hasn't produced a new hit show in years, probably since this show. I mean, we're over 10 years old. (laughs) So, yeah, definitely. I mean, we're, you know, there you go. In fact, when you look at the top 10 podcasts like Joe Rogan and This American Life, the average age of them is what, like seven years old. The closest to a new hit is a podcast by Michelle Obama. And that's not even in the top 25. In fact, after we noted this story, another story appeared with Spotify shutting down its in-house podcast studio. And they, of course, had to lay off 15 employees. They fired 15 employees who were a part of that studio. Spotify is not happy. And neither are we. Come on, people. Tell your friends about us. Rate, review the show. Oh, never mind. Uh, Big deal or big whoop? (laughs) Well, I was going to start by saying, look, people are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on podcasts and new shows in the last five years. They've set up studios. Not a single hit. None. Imagine if Netflix or Disney Plus spent all that money and didn't have a hit to talk about. Instead, they have Squid Game and Bridgerton and The Mandalorian and WandaVision. But podcasting has nothing. Pretty soon, Spotify and the old. Okay, they already did shut down their in-house studio and say, yeah, this isn't so good. Yeah, maybe we don't need this big infrastructure. You're not producing hits. You've had time. You're out of here. So well, part of it is that it is so hard to find shows. They have to be word of mouth hits. Or here's the thing. The other day I was listening to It's Been a Minute, okay, which is what I thought was a radio show. Okay. I thought it was on it's on NPR. It's produced by NPR. I didn't realize it's not a radio show. It's a podcast that they put on the radio. The Daily is another podcast that went from podcast to radio. Uh, and it's produced, though both of those are produced like radio shows, so it makes sense. But, you know, yeah, I think you st- need don't, that. Don't streaming TV shows face the same challenge? Breaking through yes. and finding, and yet we've had Squid Game but, and The Mandalorian. But they have multi million dollar marketing campaigns. They've got hundreds of millions of dollars they're spending on these shows. They've got marketing campaigns. They can market them. There's nothing, nothing stopping them from marketing these shows. There's no barrier to them marketing and trying to promote a show or to put it on radio if they've got that platform available to them to try and reach people in their cars and stuff. So they face the same challenges, but not different ones from streaming video, streaming TV and movies. So why are podcasts not producing hits? I suppose there are X, you know, we talk about peak TV and I believe FX came out with a new study saying we've hit even more than ever, even though there's a weird, there's weird carryovers from last year because of all the shutdowns. So it's going to be like two years before we have a real sense of where peak television is and how many scripted shows are being created. It's well over 500 new scripted shows in North America. It may hit 600, but it's a mess and there's just a ton of them. With podcasts, there's probably, what, thousands? Thousands? I mean, we got a podcast, right? My mother has a podcast. So the barrier to entry is lower, so there's a lot more podcasts, just like there's a lot more albums being released 
Maybe that's one reason why catalog music is doing better and better because it's harder for new acts to break out or people just can't be bothered. There's so many classic albums to listen to. They're not as compelled to listen to new albums. Maybe they've already got enough podcasts on their plate and they don't need 10 more. There's only so many hours in a day when they're commuting, right? Yeah, I agree. And, but I see what you're doing there. I see you're, you're kind of mm-hmm. mentioning catalog music because that is our topic for Inside Baseball. Now, Inside Baseball is our copyrighted segment, and you'll understand why that matters in a moment. It's where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and, more importantly, how they affect you. Every week, it seems, Michael, another aging artist seems to be selling off their music publishing rights. Bob Dylan, Paul Simon, Tina Turner, ZZ Top, David Bowie's estate, multiple members of Fleetwood Mac, and then Bruce Springsteen. I still am bummed I couldn't afford that, but he just sold off his music publishing and his masters, by the way, for a reported $600 million for between 500 and 600. The reports kind of vary. Now, most of these acts have something in common. The artists are either dead or long overdue for their social security checks. Managing the rights to a major catalog is time-consuming work that maybe the grandkids don't really want to have to take care of. Or it's just easier to sell off the publishing and have a big chunk of change to deal with, rather than, say, hand off a complex business. And yet, maybe the biggest incentive is that those publishing rights are going for a lot of money. The question is, is that... Is all this money, $600 million, $500 million, $300 million for for David Bowie, is it too much money? Here to discuss it is Ryan Fonder, a staff writer at the Los Angeles Times. His story headline, Music Catalogs Are Fetching Huge Deals. Are They Overvalued? Well, it tackles the issue. Ryan, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, and just to drive home the point that maybe some of these songs that seem really current and hip can soon seem passe, uh, your story was illustrated with a photo of Springsteen in his most dated bandana-wearing early 80s fashion phase. <laughs> just like, oh, yeah, remember that look. <laughs> yeah, so, do you have stuff. any say in what, in what the art is? Are you like, you know what? Go, go, for, the, go for the Born in the USA tour. I, want, I, I actually asked the, um, the art uh, guys over here to look for some old... Some, some old stuff. I don't know if it was just like to drive home the point that, that uh, these guys are, you know, well b- beyond retirement age at this point and, and still trucking and, and making tons of money or whether it was just like, you know, we're the LA times, we have all this archive art, so let's use it for something. And it's always exactly. really cool to, to break out uh, material uh, from, the, from the library like that. This article ran in the LA Times, of course, and it's also highlighted in the latest issue of the Wide Shot, your newsletter that everyone should subscribe to. We'll have links in our show notes. I want to talk on one other story about that before we get into the music catalogs, and that's the story about Roku and how they are expanding into more original content. They say that they saw some success when they aired the Queeby Orphans, the orphans from the short-lived content uh, source Quibi, and they had some success from shows like Die Hard. And I wonder, what the heck do they mean by some success? Because <laughs> they didn't actually make a second season of anything. They just said, well, that kind of worked. Let's do something else. Well, they did greenlight Die Harder or, oh, whatever, did they? Oh. Or, or whatever they're calling the sequel. So mm-hmm. that one's getting a season two. I don't know about the other stuff that, that they've got. I think they have uh, This Old House or, or something like that. Um, but so it moved the needle, I guess, but they won't. They didn't want to clarify how much or in what way. Enough that they're wanting to spend more money and hire more people to do originals, which, you know, I, I mean, 
it's it's hard to tell exactly how big Roku is because you know they don't really give out that many subscriber numbers or they they're also ad supported so subscriber numbers aren't really a thing it would be more like monthly active uh, users and things like that but it's it's a free it's it's a free service and we've seen that Avon has been you know pretty successful or at least in terms of driving up uh, viewership or attracting viewers people like free stuff. So, um, you know, we know this from human nature and the history <laughs> of the music business. Uh, so, yeah, they're, they're also, so speaking of music, uh, Roku just announced on Tuesday that they are getting into the music biopic business by uh, greenlighting a biopic of Weird Al Yankovic, which um, is, I, I, I don't know what data they are looking through to, to see if that is the big uh, thing that's going to make them the the next Netflix. But uh, I assume they're just looking at my viewership history and, and listening history and, and my childhood uh, for that for that information. And that will be starring the well-known Polish-American Daniel Radcliffe. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, I hope <laughs> well, you took accordion lessons because uh, that's going to be you know, really important to get the barite. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Now, now, you know what? Weird Al Yankovic is, is a very nice guy and hilarious on Twitter if you follow him. But can you tell that Michael may have just read your latest issue of The Wide Shot because he starts with Roku. We have you on to talk about music. He starts with Roku, which is what your your newsletter is about this well, week. Yeah. No, way, this week that the top story is about music catalogs. A down page. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I haven't I haven't heard of his uh, I haven't heard of Weird Al's uh, catalog is 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 up. Well, I wonder what it would go for. That's an interesting question. As a parody, whether that is value less valuable over time as the memory of the original song fades a little <laughs> bit, like Amish Paradise, perhaps doesn't quite stick in the mind as much. Fun video. When we were talking about Springsteen's catalog, I said, you know what? At this stage, I'd rather invest in his concert career, especially 10 years ago. I think there's more value in that over the next 10 years than there is perhaps in his catalog. And in the piece, you sort of spell out how do people value this stuff? How do they estimate what a publishing catalog is worth? And typically you say that they've been going for eight to 12 times what is known as the net publisher's share. That says, say a catalog generates $10 million a year, then you got to pay out uh, half of it to, uh, say, the uh, artists and the song performers and the songwriters. So you've got $5 million left over. You multiply that by about 10. So that means it's worth about $50 million. That was the old valuation. What we're seeing more recently is catalogs selling for 25 to 30 times the net publisher's share. And I'm wondering, it, we're all just saying this is a bubble. Are these publishing catalogs becoming more valuable because of new ways of using them? I mean, streaming doesn't make them more valuable. Wouldn't that make them less valuable? And there's less album sales. And there's you know, there's just more on-demand streaming where they're making a lot less than they did play me from radio play and from album sales. I'm assuming that the money they make from streaming is less than what they were making before. But is there enough new people listening to stuff that it's becoming more valuable? It sounded like from the people you spoke to, no, they're not increasing in value in terms of what money they're generating. Well, think about it this way. I mean, streaming um, with catalog sales is actually increasing in share in terms mm -hmm. of your, uh, in, in terms of what people are actually listening to through for streaming services. So typically something that's catalog is considered you know, catalog if it's 18 months or older. Uh, so not even really that old. But when you look at the, the, the streaming percentages, new material, current material is maybe 
30% of total listening um, for, for U.S. album consumption these days. And uh, catalog has actually increased to 70%. And what's going on is really like people are going back to their nostalgic favorites from s- streaming services as you know, older people are starting to join Spotify and Apple Music uh, in, in, in place of the first movers who are usually younger. So that's where you're seeing a lot of the pickup for the older material. And also just think about how, um, how catalog usually works. I mean, back tw- 10, 20 years ago, you might buy an old Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young um, CD and play it, until it, it, play it until it breaks in your car. And no matter how much you play that CD, uh, the, the, the estates and the copyright owners get paid the same amount. Like it doesn't, it, it doesn't matter. Like you already bought the CD, they've got their money and the value of that transaction does not increase on streaming. Uh, people are going online and playing Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young or, or CCR or any of these bands. And they're playing it over and over and over again. So actually the value of catalogs, uh, arguably has increased, uh, because of the streaming uh, revolution, because that's just the way that people are responding to music. They're actually, that, that, that amount of money that artists get per stream and songwriters get per stream is infinitesimal, but it's, you're talking about millions and millions of people streaming things over and over and over again. Did people say that they saw record. these catalogs churning out more revenue? I mean, because what they seem to be saying was, no, Fleetwood Mac is sort of a static. It's a stable, predictable money earner. I didn't see people saying, no, they're actually in the last five years, we've seen a huge explosion in how much money they're generating because of all the streaming going on. I didn't see that. They do increase uh, a certain amount um, in value and and revenue. But I think what what people were were telling me was that uh, despite that increase in in listening uh, and and despite that, uh, that increase in value uh that may not necessarily justify the 25 percent multiples on net publisher share that that we are seeing right now so we would call that dot com share now because that's kind of what (laughs) what it's it's gotten up to now a tech bubble type share a tech yeah it's a tech bubble type share yeah yeah and you know you look at the 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 history of entertainment is just like full of people saying that oh hollywood is overspending on xyz you know they paid way too much for marvel and uh, look what happened there i mean this there's obviously huge differences between you know netflix spending uh hundreds of millions of dollars to get shonda rhymes to get new hits versus you know a private equity company uh paying for the rights to earn revenue from uh, songs that came out 30 years ago but you know, uh, overpaying, like who's to say that was kind of the top line of the, uh, the newsletter today was just, we just, we just, we just don't know. I mean, these are clearly massive multiples and massive valuations. Um, but typically, um, even the things that people say they're overpaying for tend to pay off in some way in the long run. Well, you, you know, the difference, uh, and you pointed out in your piece is that, you know, when people are investing in a catalog, uh, you point out, there is a limit based on copyright, you know, that to how much they can make. It's something like 66%. It's limited to 66 or 60 something percent because of, uh, you know, the way copyright is regulated, so to speak, in the U.S. and frankly, around the world. Whereas on streaming, 
it's a per play kind of, and it might be only be a penny or half a penny per play, but you start adding that up 21 million pennies and all of a sudden you're making money. Uh, is that part of it? I mean, that's, that's part of what you're pointing out, isn't it? So yeah, the, the amount of money you make per, you know, per stream is basically set in a lot, in a lot of, in a lot of ways in most of the world through government regulations and consent decrees and things like that. So what you really need is more consumption. Um, that's kind of where you're going to get growth. And then the other part of it is the areas of the business where you actually can negotiate fees, which is, uh, which is placement in TV commercials, stage musicals. Yeah. Making the Bob Dylan, uh, jukebox musical or whatever you want to do. Now there's only a certain number of artists whose catalogs can justify a, a jukebox musical or a biopic or something like that. And we might be running out of those artists, although they seem to be creating them all the time. You know, Weird Al being a, a good <laughs> example of that. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the other part of the reason why these valuations are so high is because the scarcity of the types that can justify that kind of uh, franchise expansion or whatever. Now, when you talked about Shonda Rhimes, that's about investing in someone's future. Whereas these people, you're really investing in the past. You know the body of work they've done. You know what the hits are. They're not going to be producing new hits. Springsteen hasn't had a top 20 hit in like 20 years or in a top 40 hit in far long, like 35 years, I think. Why Something are you like picking that. on Springsteen? I'm not, but I wonder if the, if the valuation changes when you talk about his masters. Our masters worth less today because you're just not selling as many CDs and LPs. I mean, you can sell vinyl, but not that many. Uh, so are those somehow worth less than they used to be? We know music publishing catalog, Paul McCartney told Michael Jackson, oh my God, music publishing is a great business to be in. He told him that to his eternal regret since Michael Jackson snapped up the Beatles catalog when it was available for what we would say was a pittance. When you talk about not overpaying, oh my God, he stole that for a song. Paul McCartney should have outbid him no matter what. But the masters... I wondered if anybody discussed whether masters are somehow maybe a little less valuable now than they used to be because you're just not making sales like you used to. Well, you're definitely just seeing the songwriting catalogs taking off. Like that's the area primarily where you're seeing a lot of these huge valuations. And that's, you know, partly because of these derivative rights. I mean, ever since, since the days, you know, following the Tin Pen Alley, uh, songwriting machine. I mean, that's been the mantra for the uh, for the music business is never give up a copyright. Um, the, I, I think the Paul McCartney and the Beatles kicked themselves for decades because they let those slip away. So yeah, I'm 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 not sure about your question about well, it was, it was Bruce Springsteen was the one sale that included masters. Most people don't control their masters, uh, but in his case, the 550 million dollar valuation for what he sold included both his publishing and his masters. And I just wondered whether that part of the deal is just not as valuable as it might once used to be because you're not making sales the way you used to. I mean, like clearly, like sales or, or, or like individual CD sales are not. Um, not as big of a factor anymore. So that's definitely going into it. But you are seeing some deals for rights. It's not just it's not just the uh, song catalog deals that are happening. You're also seeing some companies buying simply the the rights to the royalties for uh, for for uh, artists. Um, and I don't know if I can rattle off any examples right off the top of my head, but you are seeing some people still invest in more like that kind of passive uh, royalty stream. I'm looking at, at the number of, of artists here. 
have some of these artists sold too early? So you look at Bob Dylan, he sells for $300 million. Then you look at Springsteen, he's selling for 550, you know, somewhere in there, million dollars. And, and the difference was one year. Did Bob Dylan sell too early? <laughs> I'd rather <laughs> have the Dylan okay. catalog. I'd rather have the Dylan catalog than the Springsteen catalog, personally. We had a long argument about who gets covered more and how valuable those are. Uh, I feel like the Dylan catalog or the Neil Diamond catalog is one that's more of an evergreen for other artists to cover them and have hits and things like that than Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, I guess you can't really worry about the uh, money that you didn't make too much after the fact, right? I mean, who knows when this when when this is going to peak? Um, but I do think like part of the part of the motivating factor here is just looking at you know. You you want to you want to cash out at some point because you what you don't want is a situation like what's happening with the Prince family or what happened with the Prince family where you know he died without having his uh, without having his uh, no will yeah no no will the estate wasn't 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 put together um, and now they're in battles with the IRS and fighting over valuation and, and, and it's just, it's just a now there's nuts. talk, talk about a bizarre valuation. The IRS came in, there was a big fight and they've all finally agreed his estate, his entire estate has been valued at $156 million. That includes the physical Paisley park, the studio, the house, everything. I believe it includes the masters that he owns, the real estate, his image and likeness. And I believe music publishing. I, can't, I just can't believe maybe it doesn't include music publishing because it makes no sense to me that that would be valued so low right now compared to Springsteen. I mean, he's got a lot more hits. He's got a lot more songs covered by other people, a lot more diversity. And there's a lot more to be exploited down the road because of all the stuff that's unreleased. We haven't done Purple Rain the musical yet. I just thought that was a crazy valuation. Yeah, but the last thing that the Prince Estate wants is for the IRS to say, oh, hey, your estate is actually worth 300 to $500 million, so we're going to tax you accordingly. Uh, well, I know that's what the family doesn't want, but that's, that's what the IRS finally decided it was worth. I think they, they blew it big time there, I think. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Well, you talk about like the, 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 the whether it might be smarter to invest in the future. Young artists don't want to give up their copyright. But when you talk about investing in Shonda Rhimes and Ryan Murphy, you're looking at people who might create a lot of new hits. That's not going to happen with Dylan and Springsteen. But would it be possible if there were young acts willing to say, hey, I've had a good run of hits five years now to invest in them and make a big play for them because you think they're going to create hits for the next 20 years? Is that a possible play or would any young artist be crazy to say, all right, I'm going to take my $150 million now and worry about you know the, you know whether I underpay, undersold myself ten or twenty years from now. Yeah, I mean it's it's partly that you know, young artists like we just don't know what's going to stick, right? We don't well, know songwriters, what's songwriters. Yeah, you know, like the Swedish Mafia. If you could have invested them five years after they started churning out hits, whether that would be smarter than worrying about picking the next you know major star, go for the songwriter. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there's, there, there's all kinds of deals to be done there. I'm sure. Um, they, th that, that's such an interesting case, and I, I think most of the people that I talk to, you know, it, it talking about these investing in these song catalogs, it really is about like these things are on the market now, and you know, we just don't. It's, it's hard to invest in in newer artists. Just because you know you're trying, you're still trying to generate the hits. You're still trying to to figure out what's what's going to stick. And like if I, I mean, if I were an, an, a new artist right now, I would certainly be holding on to my 
copyrights until I had a, a, a robust enough catalog that could rival a, you know, even a John Legend. I mean, no one thinks of John Legend as kind of this old fuddy-duddy artist. You know, he's still at all. It's but he <laughs> sold his catalog. It's yeah, like, that was that was the real rare exception. I thought his first album came out in two thousand and four, so that's just seventeen years into it. He's still as hot as ever and doing a lot of stuff. So he really did. He really kind of was an early, you know, uh, to do it quite early as opposed to the other people. I'm not quite sure why, but that was, I thought, really interesting. In it's general, right there in the music. He says, take all of me. Right? <laughs> Basically, uh, you know, uh, the reason they're all becoming available is because rock and roll is hitting retirement age, right? Started in the 50s and these people are now in their 70s and 80s. So Tina Turner is like, I'm pretty much done. Yeah, 100%. Well, and if you look at Coachella, the the programming of Coachella this year, you'd kind of go, yeah, um, rock rock and roll, yeah, no, there's like nobody, maybe Harry Styles, you could well, say, it's but just he's pop music, pop. pop music, yeah, and we're yeah. not talking about music, we're talking about pop music in general, not just rock and roll. I'm just saying, yeah. since popular music, these people that began in the '50s with Elvis, whether it's James Brown and hip hop, or whatever, you know, rap is hitting the radio in the '70s. Well, that's 50 years ago. People are getting ready to to hang it up. Yeah, and at some point the Jay Z catalog is going to be worth uh, a, a chunk of change, you know. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't know what it is about the the genres itself. It's it's probably just a timing. It's probably just a timing thing with people hitting retirement age. Um, you know, people have been saying rock and roll is dead since you know, since the '80s. Probably, I was just watching Almost Famous last night, and there's a great line oh from uh, <laughs> from Lester Banks, played by the late great C Philip Seymour Hoffman, where he talks about exactly that. Like rock and roll is over; they're just like uh, sucking the life out of it uh, at the corporate level. Um, so, so yeah, that that'll happen to hip hop at some point, and you know, just keep on going. I sure would love Willie Nelson's catalog. Ooh. Do you I mean, have that, a, you have a few hundred million dollars to to throw around there, Michael? That, that he's eighty eight for God's sakes. He's got to be ready to sell. His kids don't want to do with all that. You gave a great example of you know where people said, "Ah, oh, you overpaid," and it proved to not be true. And that was Disney buying out the Lucasfilm it was Lucasfilm, uh, Marvel. right? Marvel. Oh, Marvel. That's right. But, but you could use them, Lucasfilm both, too at the the same for the same example. Multi billion right? dollar sales and showing their worth pretty much with the first property from each of them, you know, <laughs> right away. But said, oh yeah, maybe that wasn't such a bad deal. My favorite example of not overpaying or even being really hard to overpay is when Disney paid $75 million for the rights to the Muppets in 2004. Mm. I thought that was a bargain, a crazy bargain. I, you know, you just can't create iconic evergreen characters out of thin air. And the merchandise alone would seem to be make that a worthy deal as long as you can keep them fresh in people's minds. And when you're looking at these catalogs, you just think these are evergreens, Fleetwood Mac, Bob Dylan, Bruce, John Legend, Bruce Springsteen. They're not going to go away. And even if you pay too much now or you pay a lot more than you would have liked, you know they're steady earners and that Fleetwood Mac is going to pay back. You're going to make your money back and then start getting in the black. It might take longer than you expect. But even if people think these valuations are crazy, they're not spending $10 trillion for them. They're paying money they know they will make back and be making money for decades to come. Yeah, I think as long as people look at it as uh, long-term bets, then they'll probably end up uh, they'll probably end up okay. And then, you know, there are record companies looking at these things fairly strategically and looking at uh, American roots rock music and blues rock and country music and saying where, what territories have these... Uh, genres not really broken through. Like, can we make 
Can we make uh, country music uh, super popular in, in Europe and, uh, and generate value that way? I mean, these are all the things that, that could potentially happen because of, because of streaming and globalization and, and all of that. So, yeah, I think that's an interesting part of it, too. Dolly Parton. Her catalog must be worth a pretty penny. Absolutely. She talked about maybe considering deals uh, a couple a couple years ago, but I don't know if we actually ever saw anything uh, transact. Oh, I'm pretty sure we haven't. I think we would know, but that's that's a thousand plus songs, and and there's some huge monsters in there. Yeah, I mean, her oh. brand has never been better too. I mean, <laughs> no. just like with all the all the stuff with the vaccines and everything. Yeah. Yeah, you finance one vaccine and all of a sudden you're, <laughs> you're really popular. Unbelievable. Um, well, certainly, thank you very much, Ryan, for taking the time to join us and, and tell us uh, whether all of these people are overpaying uh, for, for, for these music catalogs. I, I would imagine it seems to me that you're buying a music catalog. It's almost like an annuity. Yeah, uh, you, you might not make a lot of money all at once, but you'll make a little money each year. Whereas if you're investing, as you point out, Ryan, in, in, in Shonda Rhimes, well, the upside is she could have a huge hit down the line and, you know, you could have a windfall. So the $300 million you paid almost seems like chump change. Yeah, the, pay, the hits pay for the, for the flops. I mean, that is just like the, the tale as old as time. It's, it's never been about anything other than that in the, in the film and TV business. Uh, music financing is a little different, you know, the, especially the old stuff. It just keeps, uh, keeps, keeps right. trucking. You're not, you're not trying to hope that the hits pay for the flops. You're buying the hits and you just know that they're going to turn out a certain amount of money over time and you want to make sure you're not paying too much yeah. to make it impossible to go on the black. Yeah, and it's it's a certain. I guess the closest an analogy in streaming might be the you know the having just owning the rights to Friends and all these shows too. I mean these nostalgic things that you know we always talk about. This like streamers are spending so much money to get the biggest new show, um, but in the meantime, all we ever really want to do is watch The Office uh, over and over again. Seinfeld so. is in the top 10 on Netflix right now, the top yeah. 10 most streamed franchises right now. Yeah, And yeah, it's yeah. a show about nothing. Nothing, nothing at all. <laughs> nothing at all. Well, Ryan, thank I mean, it just goes to show you, look, if you're not subscribed, first of all, if you're listening to this podcast and you're not subscribed to The Wide Shot, what are you doing? I mean, you really should subscribe. Not only that, so you, we normally talk to you about movies. Now we're talking to you about music. It just goes to show you the, the breadth of, of knowledge. It's a very wide shot. It's a very wide shot. Oh, yeah, I just got that, actually. Now hmm. you're right. It just, yeah, wow, I should have. Okay, that's why I don't get paid the big bucks. It really just I didn't for think... me too, you guys, to be honest. Yeah, I'm really <laughs> <about> <laughs> <laughs> I just that's it i'm calling the time cool. that's all i that's all i cared about <laughs> it does sound cool and we will place links to not only the wide shop but all of your work in in uh in our uh show notes is there a place that that we can follow you on on twitter and the 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 facebooks of the world yep i'm at uh i'm at on twitter at r fonder and uh if you go there you can also find me i just i just started a letterboxd account so now i'm now i'm trying no, to be yeah. one of the cool kids which is oh you are bad. cool yeah but uh, yeah <laughs> you know i started one years ago and yeah. i just can never keep it up i'm like oh do i really want to write about like what am i going to say about this hey you know uh if you don't know what letterboxd is we'll place a link to it in the show notes but it, it forces you to write about each movie you see and eh, i don't know it's got that but, new uh, social media company smell to me. So uh, I like I And, I, and yet I it's like it. 10 years old. I know. It's, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's true. 
Well, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Well, that was great of Ryan to stop by and talk to us. I uh, find it a fascinating area. How you evaluate and decide how much music publishing is worth. Clearly, the, the 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 metric is changing since people are paying a lot more money. At some point, you have to say, okay, when everybody keeps paying this much money, I guess they're worth more than they used to be. I, I'm just going to keep you know paying Spotify. <laughs> Good idea. But that brings us to our obituary section. Music publishing is a flourishing thing, but some people's lives are coming to an end. Country music broadcasting legend Ralph Emery has died at the age of 88. Ralph Emery went from a tiny radio stations to hosting a daily talk show on the Nashville network that got him dubbed the Johnny Carson of country music. He even had a very brief recording career in the 60s, but he said, quote, I'm not a singer, and that was one of the major problems. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be a bit of a stumbling. That's sort of what held me back in opera. Emery interviewed everyone, especially on his cable talk show from 1983 to 93, when country became the biggest music genre in radio, and superstars like Randy Travis and the Judds led to Garth Brooks and Shania Twain. Emery interviewed them all. So he was a major figure in country music. A lot of fun stories about him, his feud i'll put that in quotes with the birds who he dissed because he just didn't understand rock and roll didn't realize how much they loved country music that was when they did their country album and appeared on the grand Ole opry he was just like i don't like your stuff <laughs> but they kissed and made up eventually but a major figure in country music also dying this week is another radio legend the british born but los angeles mainstay michael jackson no, not that Michael Jackson, but Michael Robin Jackson. Who I wonder why he had to put the Robin in his name. <laughs> yeah. No idea. Who broadcast yeah. from L.A. for decades, from the 60s to the 2000s. He died at 87 after a long battle with Parkinson's Sperling. My, my sympathy to you. I'm sure you knew Michael Robin Jackson well, and I heard him all the time on the radio, and I, I know it's a tough time for you. Yeah, I have no idea who you're talking about. You have no idea. Yeah, it's funny. Radio is one of those things where if you're not listening to that station or that person, you know, I didn't know Joe Rogan had a big podcast until people started telling me. I'm like, Joe Rogan's doing a podcast? The guy from Fear Factor? Okay. <laughs> like, whatever. <laughs> That's strange. But uh, those people, they're hugely important in their markets or on certain stations or in a certain genre. But like Ralph Emery, you're not into country music. You never heard of him. But it's okay. He was an important figure. And Michael R Robin Jackson did great work uh, in L.A. for all those decades. And French director Jean-Jacques Benex, he died at the age of 75. He did some good work, certainly some popular work. He's a director of glossy French films that inspired Luc Besson. And yet we come to praise Benix, not damn him, because inspiring Luc Besson is not a good thing. But anyway, his first, <laughs> his first and best film was Diva, about a fan obsessed with an opera singer. His second film was Booed at Khan, which shocked the poor man. He never quite seemed to recover from that. <laughs> Doesn't he know critics love to boo movies at Khan? Dude, it's, it's almost a badge of honor. But anyway, his biggest hit was the erotic drama Betty Blue. Sort of a French nine and a half weeks, but a little better, maybe. Did you ever see Betty Blue? No, I have not. I know really? I should. I yeah, know I should. Aren't you a straight male? <laughs> uh, you know, it's one of those like life is too short kind of things, you know. Yeah. Stop binging the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Be a man. Watch Betty Blue. Yeah. Probably oh, is the third season on of that yet? Marvelous uh, no, season? no. It's over fourth. Uh, I don't know. I have to watch. I, 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 I lost track of. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and we're Whatever. looking at the fourth season coming up very soon. Uh, but Diva's the one you put on his tombstone. And there's a lot of stuff you could put on the tombstone for singer Ronnie Spector. She died at the age of 78. One of the great voices in pop history. 
Singer Ronnie Spector was a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She recorded albums for decades, wrote a classic memoir, survived a marriage with producer and convicted murderer and kind of crazy person Phil Spector. And she enjoyed a resurgence when she sang on the Eddie Money hit song, Take Me Home Tonight, which is when Sperling saw her in concert. That's right. Yeah, no, I saw her in the 80s, actually. I think it was 1986. Take me 86. home tonight. Yeah, and she came out and sang that song with him. And then, of course, it was a it was a promotion, uh, or not a promotion, but a, a, a charity event uh, with both Eddie Money and Cyndi Lauper. Oh, what do you mean it was a charity event? They were raising money for something? Yeah, they were raising money for something, and I can't remember what. So you, uh, saw, you, saw, you saw him, and you saw Ronnie Spector, and you saw Cyndi Lauper? All on the same night. That's very cool. That's uh, okay. yeah. It was it was a 1986 hit from his. It was from his 86 album "Can't Hold Back." So that's right in peak Cindy Lauper era. So that was that. And she's in great voice. I've never seen her. Was she good too? Yes, and she came out. Um, she sang "True Colors" mm-hmm. uh, with you know acapella. Basically, she came out like because it was a special event. Mm-hmm. She came out uh, after the all the encores were over and sang it. Uh, it was December 28th. 1986. Very nice. And she came out and and sang that a cappella. Oh, very sweet. But back to Ronnie Spector, one of the greats. It all came down to some classic songs and albums she recorded with the Ronettes and on her own, mostly with Spector as producer, the Svengali of teen pop. I like this from Variety. Granted an audition with Spector, the Ronettes, fronted by Ronnie, launched into a version of Frankie Lyman's Why Do Fools Fall in Love? According to her autobiography, Spectre instantly leaped up from his piano and exclaimed, that's the voice I've been looking for. <laughs> Can you imagine you're a girl in high school, you're auditioning, and the guy jumps up and goes, that's the voice I want. It's like an old movie. She can be heard on Spectre's classic holiday album, A Christmas Gift for You, one of the great albums of all time, and the iconic debut album, Presenting the Fabulous Ronettes, featuring Veronica. That's the full name of the album. Both are often included on a list of the best albums of all time. She had songs like Be My Baby, Baby I Love You, The Best Part of Breaking Up, and If You Want to Cry, Walking in the Rain. The closest comparison I can think of is Darling Love, who's still with us. Uh, let's celebrate Ronnie Spector and let's celebrate Darling Love while she's still around and sounding in great voice, but one of the greats. Well, and, and I just I looked up this concert that I, w- I went up to. It was, uh, it was at Madison Square Garden, December 19th, 1986. It was WNEWFM's Christmas holiday, concert. Holiday show, right, of course. Yeah, yeah it must have been. Exactly. And it was also a UCP benefit. I don't know what UCP stands for, though. So I have no... United no Cerebral Palsy. Yeah, there you United go. Cer- Cer- Cerebral yeah. Palsy, yeah. So, well, well, cool. go figure. Down memory lane with Sperling. Come back next week when Sperling talks about his kindergarten days. No, next week will be Sundance. Sundance, Sundance. All about Sundance. Oh, you're going to be at Sundance? Oh, it's virtual Sundance. Yes, it's virtual Sundance. And then the week after that, uh, during that week, I will be heading down to the Keys. So I'm not sure if two weeks from now we'll have a show because uh, maybe I'll be able to on that Monday. That Tuesday, February 1st, is my mom's 93rd birthday and all the kids are gathering together in the Florida Keys to celebrate her big day. So we may be able to have a show that week. I'm hoping so. Well, hopefully we'll figure it out. Here's a question. If I lost my keys, can I call you then? If I'm looking for my keys? <laughs> uh, I've got thanks. a million of these jokes. I've got a that, million of them. That's why you're a dad. Take us away. Well, okay. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes, the Google Podcast Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify. Even though they've given up their podcast studio, they still have us. I believe we're on TuneIn and I, I think I said Stitcher. Anyway, 
please do subscribe to the show so that you don't miss an episode or you know what rate and review the show in any one of those podcast aggregators that allows you to do so if you can't find us on any one of those aggregators please write to us and let us know we can be reached dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address d-i-r-t at showbizsandbox.com we're also on voicemail so you can call and leave us a voicemail the number to call is 888-567-SAND that's 888-567-7263 we're also on Twitter at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle, and we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. Now, that information can be found on our website, along with links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, as well as links to the work of Ryan Fonder. Please do go and read his story on music catalogs and whether they, you know, people are paying too much for them. Also, subscribe to his newsletter, The Wide Shot. That information will be on our website at showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Giltz can be found online, and every week he's got something new and exciting for us. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's everybodyslying.com. Your go-to no, I stop, it's your go-to website for uh, refuting any and all allegations. Ah, okay. Well, you know what? Just here, here's the thing. If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on that website, whatever he just said, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. (laughs) 